0: This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now,
1: from New York, here's Josh King.
2: Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week was going to be our final installment of Conversations from the Aspen Ideas Festival, and we'll get to that later in the show. But boom, some big stuff happened on the polyoptics front. So here I am back in the studio to help with some fresh perspective. First, Monday, like a left hook out of nowhere, Amazon founder and CEO Jeff Bezos scoops up the venerable Washington Post for a rather cool $250 million. A dilettante dancing in the world of Watergate quality journalism or just what the industry needs to bring innovation and technology to a tired, some would say, exhausted business model. Then, Wednesday, we get news that President Obama will cancel his upcoming bilateral summit with Russian President Vladimir Putin. The mess over Edward Snowden's temporary asylum, only the latest slight in a bilateral relationship that's become progressively more sour. So, before we get to the rest of the show, we'll welcome Peter Baker of the New York Times, the perfect guy to give us some inside perspective. Peter was... For 20 years, a leading reporter at the Washington Post, a lot of it on the White House beat. And he also had an extended tour as Moscow bureau chief. Peter's got a new book coming out in October, Days of Fire, Bush and Cheney in the White House. And while we'll have him back in the fall to probe that story in more depth, we'll get a preview today of what's to come. Then, listeners, it's back to Aspen one more time. With the Detroit bankruptcy on many minds, it's a great time to check in with Bruce Katz of the Brookings Institution. His new book with Jennifer Bradley, The Metropolitan Revolution, How Cities and Metros Are Fixing Our Broken Politics and Fragile Economy, shows that Katz is one of the most foremost thinkers on how America really ticks outside of Washington and should provide a ray of hope for the future. Finally, as I was watching Bruce talk in Aspen, I spied a familiar face, Ned Lamont, Ned was the Democratic nominee for the Senate in 2006, in my then-home state of Connecticut. He seemed destined to win the race, but was upended in the final weeks by Joe Lieberman, running as an independent. I always wondered how Lamont thought about that race, and how he's been filling his time since, and we'll catch up with him later. But first, from an undisclosed location somewhere in the territorial waters of Massachusetts, let's welcome Peter Baker to Polyoptics. Peter, welcome to the show.
3: Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
2: Uh, did it hit you like a left hook like it did everyone else, Donald Graham and the Graham family selling the Post?
3: Oh, it really did, actually. I, I, I It probably shouldn't have, but it was a shock. I think uh, everybody understood that the Post has been in trouble for a number of years, and everybody understood that you know there could come a day like this, but uh, I don't think a lot of us who still uh, love and care about uh, the Post saw it coming. And so, yeah, there's a lot of emotion, actually. Uh, in my household, and I think that of a lot of people who either currently or used to work at the Post.
2: David Remnick uh, was quick with a piece that gave some uh, a view in the auditorium of the Post, and when Donald and Catherine uh, Weymouth uh, got in front of the Post staff and told them to listen and not tweet, how did the word sneak out to former Posties like yourself?
3: Well, I got a I got a news alert on my phone. You know, that's the uh, that tells you something right there, right? How does news travel these days? Not in the old-fashioned way. And there's a news alert from Politico, uh, which is the institution that's come along to challenge the Post for its dominance in political news. So, you know, that tells you something a little bit right there. But there's, you know, you talk about Don Graham, and he uh, he deserves all the. Uh, applauded and praise he's gotten in these last few days, because the truth is, in, the, in, a, in, a, in a tough time and in a tough business, he is about as classy an individual as you'll ever find, one with great integrity and commitment to journalism, and, we, and I think that's the reason why you saw so much emotion on the part of people connected to the Post, because it really is a passing of an era.
2: You tweeted out a couple of days ago, uh, went something like this, Beyond Donald Graham's easy grace was unflinching integrity. Whenever the hard journalistic moments came, we always knew he had our backs. Reflecting on your own two decades uh, at the Post, what were some of those hard times that you faced that, that Graham was there for you?
3: Oh, sure. Absolutely. Look, I, I covered the White House, as you mentioned, uh, for the Post. Uh, you know, the Clinton White House days, uh, uh, they were very unhappy with uh, a lot of the coverage that we did, particularly of some oh, of the Oh, no, we,
2: we they- loved it, Peter. We welcomed every minute of it.
3: Yeah, well, you know, it—it—it it, it, it was. It, there were tough times. It's—it's a, it's a job of a newspaper, particularly in Washington, to take a a, a, a tough-eyed look at any White House. Uh, and And so he always he always stood by the reporters, no matter how much pressure he was under and how much pressure the paper was under uh and I always always knew that I didn't have to worry and if he made a decision, I always knew it was the right one so you know there's a certain fatherly figure to a lot of us uh who were younger in those days and 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 you knew you could trust Dad in effect, that was sort of the way I think a lot of us viewed him and still view him so uh you know in a business today where you know a lot of newspapers are passed hand to 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 people who don't have that kind of background or experience it's unsettling to think that he's not going to be there for
2: us a couple of weeks ago we had uh, my old friend mark Leibovich on the show we were talking about uh his book and the fact that the last chapter was the last party uh focusing on his experience going to the home of ben bradley uh and it seems like it has almost come to fruition but not with Bradley's own demise, but with the paper's own demise, we, Lebo and I played a, a clip from the Washington Post, in which from the all the presidents men, in which Bradley says to Woodward and Bernstein, you know, you've got to trust your trust your reporters, because Bradley didn't want to go do the reporting himself. Is there a specific moment in your own days with Don Graham that that you had one of those Don, I need some advice here moments, and he he steered you in the right direction.
3: Well, it was, never, you know, it was not a great single Hollywood-type moment, but it was a series of moments with him. I remember even as a young Metro reporter, I didn't think my own uh, editors knew who I was, but Don Graham did. You know, you would run into him in the newsroom. Not only did he know who you were, he knew where he went to college, he knew what story you were working on, he knew about the people you were covering in the far-off counties that nobody paid attention to. And, you know, it's not surprising that he would know uh, about White House coverage and stand up when a White House was uh, uh, pushing back, but he, 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 he knew every part of that newspaper. And it was just uh, it was part of his bones, you know. He just had it uh, wired in his DNA. So yeah, I do remember a lot of moments like that. I you know, during the Monica Lewinsky story, very tough story, and a lot of heat from a lot of different people, uh, and a tricky balance for us to play in covering a you know a tough story. He stood by us and every every step of the way. So uh, you know that that's part of his legacy is 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 one is a commitment to journalism that I hope that Jeff Bezos is going is to take from him and, and carry on.
2: Well, Walter Isaacson uh, posted a blog today and gave us a little bit of video of Bezos uh, in conversation with um, Charlie Rose. I want to hear about a minute of that. And have you summarized the, the chatter amongst your colleagues, both at The Times and The Post, about what Bezos'
1: ownership will mean? Sure. Are you tested by failure, and do you believe this notion that you learn more from failure than you do from success?
0: Well, I think you very well may. You know, we, um, Certainly, Amazon has had unbelievable amounts of good luck. Right. So, you know, if you look at where we are today, it's half luck, half good timing, and the rest has been brains. Right. And, and, and so... <laughs> so we have... We have... We, we have I mean, I, you know, we have not, in some ways... And, and brilliant leadership, but. I think in some ways, we have not been tested. Right. Um, but, you know, we have had... Um, you know, we were unprofitable for so long, and uh, people predicted our demise for so long, we did develop thick skin, Mm -hmm. so we we do, which I think is very valuable for invention because oftentimes, invention requires a long-term willingness to be misunderstood. You do something that you genuinely believe in, that you have conviction about, but for a long period of time, well-meaning people may criticize that effort. And, and, and when, you, when you receive criticism from well-meaning people, it pays to say, first of all, search yourself. Are they right? And if they are, you need to adapt your, right. what you're doing. If they're not right, if you really have conviction that they're not right, then you need to have that long-term willingness to be misunderstood. It's a key part of invention.
2: Peter Baker, you and uh, Jeffrey Goldberg were tweeting back and forth that at least the post wasn't bought by Dan Snyder.
3: <laughs> yeah, as well, <laughs> he's not—he's uh, not been a favorite of Washingtonians uh, in the example of, of uh, young owners buying up old institutions. Uh, but look, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos hopefully is. You know, Don Graham—I don't know him. I've never met Jeff Bezos, but John, Don Graham does know him, known him for a long time. And I have to believe that he wouldn't have sold it to him if he didn't think that he shared some of the great commitment that uh, Don Graham has had to journalism over the years he wouldn't just sell any old hedge fund or uh, you know some sort of vulture capitalist kind of owner he he, he cares too much about that uh so uh, you know we're going to see what uh, Bezos has in store for the paper i i i i'm optimistic i'm optimistic that the change is good sometimes even if as we mourn the passing of one era that that uh, uh that Bezos brings a level of entrepreneurial uh, spirit of creativity, of willingness to be disruptive uh, to an institution that needs it, frankly, frankly to uh, to survive to a new era.
2: At the same time, uh, it seemed incumbent upon the Salzberger family to get out a quick statement about the New York Times and whether it, too, might be for sale. What's been the chatter uh, up in the islands about whether or not the Grey Lady would uh, fall into new hands?
3: Well, you know, as you say, Arthur put out a statement uh, saying that uh, we're not for sale, and I... I, I you know, take that at as word. I hope that's true. Uh, you know, he's been a great owner, and he has. Uh, what struck me about Sulzberger, who I don't know as well as I know Don Graham, he has protected the franchise of journalism during this period when many other owners haven't. You know, he has he has done everything he can to preserve the New York Times uh as we always hope it to be he, he's open bureau's not closed bureau's he's increased our ambition rather than scale it back and so that's why i think people are concerned and don't want the uh, you know don't look forward to the idea of the is ever selling because i think we know what we've got uh right now we've got a like owner who like the grams is committed to journalism
2: Peter Baker switching gears uh one of the aspects of the Great Times writing and the fact that it is so vital is that it can call people like Peter Baker back from vacation to (laughs) write an important piece like ties fraying Obama drops Putin meeting what should we glean from this news now that at the upcoming G20 in St. Petersburg President Obama will not have that characteristic sit down with his Russian counterpart like so many meetings that I set up
3: yeah I (laughs) think I think this is a big moment in the relationship. I think that, you know, four years ago, the president went to Moscow. He had a meeting with uh, the Russians and said, this is a new era. We're going to rebuild this relationship. We're going to have a reset, is what he called it. And for a while, it looked like there was some uh, movement in that direction. There was uh, an arms control treaty. There was a new transit corridor for troops in Afghanistan, sanctions on Iran. But ever since Putin came back to power a year ago, things have just gone from bad to worse. And this Cancellation, which, by the way, no American president has done, the Russian leader in decades, uh, is the final sort of symbol. I think of how the reset has now uh, has now collapsed, at least for the moment. So he's not going to have that meeting with him. Moscow he says we're so far apart on I mean, these issues, it's not even worth sitting down to talk. And I think that really tells you something about the state of relations today.
2: President Obama sort of shared a bit of his thoughts, uh, not in a diplomatic setting but on the set of the tonight show the other night with Jay Leno I want to hear a little bit of what he told that host.
0: There have been times where they slip back into Cold War thinking and and a Cold War mentality and and, uh, what I consistently say to them and what I say to uh, President Putin is that's the past and you know we've got to think about the future and there's no reason why uh, we shouldn't be able to cooperate more effectively than we do.
1: And Putin seems to me like one of those old school KGB
3: guys.
0: Well he, he. he I mean, headed up the KGB.
3: Yeah, well, that's right. what I mean. That's well, yeah, that's what I mean. He has that mentality. It's, I mean, look at this picture here. You two. I'm pretty...
2: Peter Baker. You might not have been staying up late night during vacation hours uh, to watch the Tonight Show, but what did you think of sort of using uh, putting out the dirty laundry in that fashion?
3: Well, look, I think he's he's frustrated. President Obama uh, feels like he's uh, been disrespected by uh, by Putin in the way he's handled the Snowden case, as well as other things. And I think that he's kind of exasperated at this point. Uh, you know, just to, to correct him, Putin was never actually head of the KGB, but he was head of the KGB successor agency, the FSB, and was a long-time KGB officer before that. And I think that the, these two men don't connect. Putin and Obama are from different generations. They're from different backgrounds. They have so little in common and there's pictures that I think that Leno was showing on that show give that impression of just how distant they are. We quote somebody in our paper this morning, a Russian analyst, who said, look, I'm sorry to say it so bluntly, but uh, Putin doesn't like your guy. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, uh, respect him. He thinks Obama is weak. So uh, there is very little room right now for for common ground, and it's going to be interesting to see whether that changes in the next three years or not.
2: I was going to go to that quote by Piantovsky because I found it so amazing to find its, its way into a New York Times uh, article by Peter Baker, and I, I should read it verbatim. Al- Andre Piantovsky, a political analyst, said the cancellation underscored a visceral personal enmity between the two leaders. Quote, Putin openly despises your president. Forgive my bluntness, he said. Any yeah. any struggle in putting that into the paper?
3: No, I mean, I think that's a, a fair rec- uh, assessment of where things are right now. Uh, and I haven't gotten any complaints from either the Gremlins or the White House today saying it isn't true. So, you know, it's important, I think, actually to tell readers that kind of thing that behind there's a lot of things that go behind uh, diplomacy and geopolitics. Uh, contrary national interests is one, you know, uh, policy, philosophy, ideology, but also personal chemistry. And there is no personal chemistry here between these two men.
2: So, uh, on a rebound, uh, as you tweet out an in your face moment, the president is instead going to Sweden. Is he going to tour an IKEA factory or a Saab factory? <laughs>
3: It's a good question. I don't know. He's stopping in Sweden on the way to St. Petersburg. He's skipping the Moscow summit, but he's still going to St. Petersburg for a G-20 summit. Uh, The the rationale being it's not a Russia thing. It's a... G20 thing, just happens to be on Russian soil. But going to Sweden is a little bit of an in-your-face thing. It says, you know, I'm, I treat Sweden in a way that I'm not treating Russia, which is a much bigger and grander country. And the other thing he's doing is he's inviting the leaders of the Baltic states, you know, Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia to come visit him first. That's a very sensitive subject for the Russians. They still consider that to be their neighborhood and don't like the fact that they're in NATO and allies of the United States.
2: Yeah, I can see a long cross-haul walk to accentuate that moment in the White House as well.
3: Yeah, that's right,
2: exactly. Uh, we'll get into this more when we have you back for Days of Fire, but just from your own uh, Russian experience as Moscow bureau chief, as a polyoptician, I'm always fascinated by the incredible expanse of Putin photo ops from the deep-sea diving to fishing to <laughs> shooting. What, what's your take on how he, he uses imagery to project his power locally?
3: That's a great question, and it's perfect for your show. He's exactly right. He, he is the first Russian leader to really understand the power of imagery, the power of of, uh, uh, of visuals. Uh, he's a very modern thinker in that regard, even if he's an old thinker in terms of you know uh, the way he leads. So as you say, he, he, he a lot of pictures of the man without his shirt, right, and, and with large animals and, and deep sea diving for for pre-positioned artifacts that he can discover, and it's uh, you know it, it, it's meant to convey to the Russian people that he is a true muzik, he is a true, you know, a manly man in effect, which is an important thing in Russian politics. He's not a big guy. I mean, if you were to meet him in person, he's kind of a small, slight fella, and I think there's sort of this compensation factor going on, I say, as a small, slight fella myself, uh, going on where he feels the need to prove himself uh, uh, in a muscular and, uh, you know, sometimes coarse political culture.
2: Now, as I know as through my relationship with Leibovitch, these final few months before publication of a major book uh, provide for many nail-biting moments for the author. Uh, you've got a huge book coming out, Days of Fire in October, uh, about the Uh, relationship between President Bush, Vice President Cheney. Uh, I was wondering whether you toyed with calling it Days of Thunder, but then you'd violate the uh, (laughs) Bruckheimer, Tom Cruise movie. But what will we find in the next Peter Baker book?
3: I'm thinking about reading Days of This Town. If I could just sort of tap into Mark's uh, fairy dust magic here, uh, that would be great. He's about to be a... Third week in a row on the New York Times bestseller list in the top three, so uh, it's you know it's, it's meant to be the first history of the uh, of the Bush Cheney White House. We haven't had one since they concluded, and and it tells a story through the prism of the relationship between these extraordinary uh, men, the president and vice president, who have a partnership unlike any we ever saw before. And it's not the one that people think they understand. It's a much more complicated and evolving partnership over eight years than people seem to think. There's a mythology out there, and we try to bust that mythology through this book and explain in a in more uh, nuanced and compelling way just how dramatic uh, this time of, 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 of American history was and this relationship between these two powerful people was.
2: One glimpse that we got of that was directly from the vice president himself earlier this year, the uh, documentary from uh, R.J. Cutler, The World According to Dick Cheney on Showtime. I want to hear a little bit from the vice president himself and get you to comment about whether, how that fits into the narrative. Cheney's yep.
0: approach to foreign policy and national security put Bush in a position of real danger in terms of his legacy.
2: Vice President Cheney's influence was somewhat diminished and Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, who was very, very close to the president, was sort of, her influence was ascendant.
4: In the last two years of the administration, Cheney remains deeply worried that rogue states will spread weapons of mass destruction around the world he advocates a hard line against nuclear-armed North Korea, Rice prefers diplomacy.
0: North Korea had tested weapons, and it was their first nuclear weapons test. It was in the fall of 06. It should have been some effective sanction imposed, or, or some uh, fairly dramatic action taken. Kindly disagree. Bush chooses Rice's approach.
4: Are you concerned? That uh, the hardliners within the administration uh, may undermine your efforts, the State Department's efforts.
1: Well, uh, I I think these are the efforts of the United States government. The last time I looked,
4: Cheney's concerns about treating North Korea too gently are soon realized. The administration obtains evidence that North Korean scientists are working on a new nuclear reactor in Syria.
2: Peter Baker, uh, through R.J. Cutler's documentary and the vice president's own words, this is a non-unconciliatory vice president, very comfortable with his position in history. Was there? uh, Is that the portrait that you see as well?
3: Yeah, I really enjoyed that uh, documentary. R.J. Cutler is a terrific uh, filmmaker, Uh, and and I had a couple interviews with the vice president for my book as well. And and, in in those interviews. What comes across is, uh, as you say, he's very comfortable with the decisions he made. He does not stay up nights thinking uh, or rethinking uh, uh, the decisions he made or helped make. Uh, The the episode you just talked about there with North Korea is a perfect example of how things changed as the administration went on. He he was no longer uh, the preeminent advisor. He felt very uh, upset that... Uh, George Bush, in his view, was drifting away from the ideals that he felt that they had set in the first term that, 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 that in his view Bush had said that uh, after that North Korean uh, nuclear test, that if there was any evidence of non of proliferating nuclear technology to other states, that would be a red line for him. Well, then they in effect crossed that red line with syria and, and as far as Taney was concerned, there was no living up to the to the warning that Bush himself had made, and that was a mistake. Bush obviously felt differently, felt that uh, uh, with the war in Iraq going as badly as it was, uh, that he could not afford to be, uh, you know, provoking uh, dangerous situations uh, in too many parts of the world at one time.
2: Some surprising news this week. Finally, Peter Baker from Texas, that this, the former president, 67-year-old George W. Bush, a person known to do these long mountain bike rides with uh, with veterans across the state, had stents put in. What are your sources say about how the recovery is going?
3: Well, he's out of the hospital already. He had the uh, he had the stent put in on uh, uh, Tuesday. He was out of the hospital by Wednesday. By by Thursday today, he was supposed to be back. Uh, with a full schedule, it wouldn't surprise me if he was. It's intriguing because, of course, it was Vice President Cheney who had the history of heart trouble—that he had five heart attacks, uh, repeated procedures like the one that the, that the former president had this week, until finally having a heart transplant uh, a year ago. And, and President Bush, by comparison, has always been very, very fit, uh, model of health for a man of his age. And I think this is probably disconcerting to his family and friends who uh, uh, are surprised by what's happened.
2: Peter Baker of the New York Times, author of the upcoming Days of Fire, Uh, and I hope that I will get a pre read so I, like Gwen (laughs) Eiffel, can have reading with my toes in the sand.
3: (laughs) Absolutely. We'll get you a copy. Thanks so much.
2: Thanks, Peter. When we come back to Polyoptics on Sirius XM, POTUS, Channel 124 from Aspen, it's Bruce Katz of the Brookings Institution and his new book, The Metropolitan Revolution How Cities and Metros Are Fixing Our Broken Politics and Fragile Economy.
1: This is the only channel that takes you inside Washington D.C.
0: My message is it's just not realistic. If we're serious about growing our economy. Our economy—it's clear the president's is policy is not helping the economy. The economy. Bureaucracy, Monte Paul's policy—we'll be able to reduce our deficit. Fighting over power—it's starting to make a lot more sense.
4: This is POTUS.
2: Welcome back. I'm Josh King, and you're listening to Polyoptics on Sirius XM POTUS, channel 124. Let's now join our conversation from the Aspen Ideas Festival with Bruce Katz of the Brookings Institution. Bruce is one of those guys that might have been written about in Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. If you spend enough time on one topic or area of expertise, there aren't many who can keep up. And that's true when it comes to Katz and the study of our cities and metropolitan areas. Before hearing from Bruce, let's listen to a recent clip from ABC's This Week with George Stephanopoulos. It's George talking to Detroit Mayor Dave Bing.
3: Detroit declared bankruptcy Thursday, the largest American city ever to do so. And we're joined now by the mayor of Detroit, Dave Bing. And Mayor Bing, I know you resisted this bankruptcy option, but are you convinced now that it's gonna bring a new start to the people of Detroit? Well, I'm
0: surely um, hoping that this will be a new start. Uh, Detroiters are a very, very resilient uh, people. And uh, we have a, a, you know, when we had Chrysler and General Motors that, uh, that the federal government helped uh, in their bankruptcy, uh, they came back and they are doing well. Detroit is a very iconic city worldwide, and uh, our people will fight through this, and we will come back.
2: That's Detroit Mayor Dave Bing with George Stephanopoulos, and now on to my conversation with Bruce Katz. As Newark Mayor Cory Booker said, the Metropolitan Revolution by Bruce Katz upends conventional wisdom and makes the case for how our cities and metros are leading American change and progress. They're transforming our national economy, political conversation, and collective destiny from bottom up like never before. A must read for anyone working toward a brighter future for our cities and our nation. That's Cory Booker, and here's Bruce Katz. Happy to be here again in Aspen, Colorado, with Bruce Katz, the co-author of The Metropolitan Revolution. Bruce is also the vice president uh, at Brookings Institution, had a chance to see his presentation this morning at the Aspen Ideas Festival. And uh, as we look out at this incredible vista, it it struck me, too, that while your study of work is so much focused on the 100 top metropolitan areas in the United States, this is a pretty special ecosystem in itself, once a mining town and now a tourist mecca.
4: Yeah, I think Aspen, uh, Colorado, is emblematic of places that uh, Mm -hmm. might have focused on resource extraction 100, 150 years ago and then are now able to reinvent themselves, really, of a center of tourism and ideas festivals. And And what it goes to show is places need to understand What's your role in the economy, domestic and global? What's your function? What's your reason for being? You know, for a long time, I think we forgot that in the United States because we were focused on consumption and home building and you know, the things that come out of a productive economy rather than the productive economy itself. So our book, So Much, is about places really understanding who they are and then finding their game changer to leverage their special assets and advantages.
2: How did the interest in places for you actually start?
4: Um, Well, I grew up in uh, Brooklyn, New York. Um, I, I was fortunate enough in high school to be allowed to leave school for six months. Um, and have an internship with the city council, the New York City Council. And after that, I was just pretty much obsessed. With under whose politics. mayorship? Uh, this was under Mayor Abe Bean. Yeah. So this is back in the 70s, and I worked for a very uh, vital uh, city councilman, Bobby Steingood. And I just fell in love with cities and politics and policy and um, you know the whole progress of urban places.
2: Brooklyn itself as case study <laughs> it's changed a little <laughs> I mean it ha- I, I, I so enjoyed watching uh, 42 the story of Jackie yeah. Robinson yes. earlier this year that uses the magic of CGI to recreate Ebbets yes. Field but, but now it actually has something in the Barclays Center uh, right. and, and other Amenities that make Brooklyn once again an incredibly attractive place to live.
4: I grew up in Brooklyn during a different kind of period. (laughs) It was a little bit dystopian at times, Um, but uh, I always believed in the power of New York and the power of the boroughs. And it took a long time. It took you know um, the hard work of not just the, the mayors, but business, civic, university, neighborhood, community leaders who just stuck to it over decades. How
2: much credit do you give to people like Bean and Koch, uh, Dinkins, Giuliani, and now Bloomberg?
4: I think Koch, Giuliani, and Bloomberg um, were very successful mayors for different reasons. Um, You know, uh, Koch really came in, you know, after the financial collapse um, and, and was able to really uh, restore a sense of confidence in the city. Giuliani is, is known for being tough on crime, safe streets, which really does provide a platform uh, to, to, for a place to be attractive to business and people. I think Bloomberg's you know inherited some really tough challenges. I mean, he became mayor after 9-11. Um, he, he's, he steered the city through the recession, now Hurricane Sandy, but just smart, strategic, focused, above the fray in some respects. Um, We have a story in our book about the Applied Sciences District, which is really the cornerstone of his economic development strategy. And, you know, that was really done by the mayor in the depths of the recession, convening hundreds of business civic and university leaders and saying, what do we do to diversify our economy and set a platform for long-term growth? I give Bloomberg a lot of credit.
2: I'm surprised by so much of the blowback that seemed to have uh, arrived with the arrival of city bikes, uh, the new amenity in town. And yet, you, my friend Howard Wolfson is constantly tweeting out uh, number of millions of miles driven and number of rides taken. Uh, and city bikes are a, a version of that. Is here in Aspen. What do you, what what would, should one say to detractors of these kinds of uh, pedestrian amenities? Well, I
4: actually used the bike share yesterday in Aspen. It was phenomenal. And and, and I'm close friends with Jeanette on the transportation commissioner in New York. Cities are changing in the United States. Um, the form of cities is changing. What what the public is demanding is more livability, uh, more transportation options. Uh, they want cities for people, not cities for cars. Um, and this is happening obviously across the United States, in Europe, um, and in other parts of the world. So the form and the function of cities are changing in the 21st century. And Successful countries and successful cities need to understand those dynamics and need to adapt fast You said they don't frankly they get punished by the market
2: you write in your book uh, The Metropolitan Revolution about the inversion of the hierarchy of yes. power in the United States And I was interested as I listened to your talk today thinking about a major decision uh, That will come down uh, in the next couple of years about whether former Secretary of State Senator First Lady Hillary Clinton uh, decides to run for President of the United States, <laughs> when in fact we know that there was a overture by Mayor Bloomberg to have her take over uh, or run for mayor of New York, which you might argue is, would be a much more attractive results-oriented job.
4: Well, I think she might have more fun. Um, no, if you look at uh, Rahm Emanuel coming from being the White House Chief of Staff to being mayor of Chicago, look, the action, the affirmative energy, the pragmatism is really all at the local level in this country and, frankly, elsewhere in the world. Because these cities and metropolitan areas are very powerful economically. The top 100 metros sit on only one-eighth of our landmass, two-thirds of our population, three-quarters of our GDP. And on everything that matters, skills and, and innovation and infrastructure, 75, 80, 85, 90 percent of the national share. So. Mayors understand, and corporate and civic leaders understand that, that that cities and metros are the engines of the economy. And now what's happening is they're the vanguard of policy innovation. So um, I, I would say to any uh, politician, whether seasoned um, like mrs. Clinton or or a young a young one, you know, go where you can make change. Um, and 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 I, 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 look, I don't think this is a cyclical event in the United States. I think this is structural. I think this is where the action is going to be.
2: You worked in, as I did in the Clinton administration, uh, as the chief of staff to um, HUD Secretary uh, Henry Cisneros. You were on the Obama transition team helping uh, Secretary Sean Donovan take over the housing department here. Uh, So you're obviously close to the dynamic of what Rahm Emanuel faced as a representative from Illinois, uh, growing in power in the House of Representatives, White House Chief of Staff, and then the decision to follow Mayor Daley in Chicago. What do you know about how actually he is, uh, you know, the, the challenges he's having, the enjoyment and fun he's having as mayor, uh, and, the, and the impact that a guy with that kind of uh, political skill has on a city like that, which has only really known one family is leading it for so long. Sure.
4: I think Mayor Emanuel is having a very positive effect on Chicago. And, uh, you know, he came in, um, obviously, in uh, sort of facing some big issues, particularly around crime, homicides, the schools, you know, at the end of the day, cities need safe streets, good schools, efficient delivery of services to be successful. But what he also did is he pulled in the business leadership, World Business Chicago, and he basically said, I need a plan, an economic strategy for this city that is really aligned to this disruptive moment post-recession. Convene the civic, university, community, labor, environmental leaders in the city and give me that unified narrative and give me initiatives um, that I can actually design and deliver and finance. And so that's what's happening right now in Chicago. They are on the vanguard of a manufacturing renaissance. They're focusing on infrastructure finance. They are helping to make their buildings energy efficiency. They're focusing on exports and trade. This is a new kind of economic development for cities. You know, 15 years ago, you would go to most cities and say, what's your economic development strategy? Oh, we're building a new stadium, We're extending our convention center. We're building a performing arts facility. It was the consumption economy. Now, when you go into cities like Chicago, what's your economic strategy? We want to be a productive, innovative economy and help workers get the skills they need so they can compete globally.
2: So let's sort of take a geographic turn around the country, uh, talk about a few cities, maybe some that I have some experience in uh, and you have experience in so many. But uh, moving moving west, we talked during your talk about uh, what made Silicon Valley, Palo Alto such a success and yet what might be its challenge on the horizon.
4: Well, you know, we've always focused with Silicon Valley on the celebrity entrepreneurs like Steve Jobs, and and I completely appreciate their inventiveness and innovation. But I think what made Silicon Valley so powerful, probably why Steve Jobs was there in the first place, was an ecosystem of advanced research institutions like Stanford, um, really innovative companies, entrepreneurs, talented workers, a quality of place. I think the challenge for Silicon Valley right now is that I see a lot of the spatial geography of innovation um, Happening not in science parks in these isolated corporate campuses, but smack-dab in the middle of cities and downtowns and midtowns You know Research Triangle Park near Raleigh-Durham, which is the other iconic uh, Science park of the late 20th century. They're having to urbanize bring housing into the park bring biking into the park If not, they're gonna lose companies and workers to downtowns of Raleigh-Durham
2: because Humans like to congregate. Humans like to see people who do different things. And, and what is there about the chemistry of, of people but who are doing different things that leads to creative vitality?
4: Well, I think the, the, the phrase these days is open innovation. There's a synergy when you get companies and, and talented workers in close proximity to each other. Cambridge understands that. There's a story in our book. Boston understands this. Barcelona totally understands this in Europe. So something is changing about the spatial geography of innovation. We're going really from being closed source to open source, and it's being reinforced by a younger generation that is basically telling the market, we want livability, walkability. We want bikes, going back to what New York City is doing about bike sharing. We want a different form. We don't just want sprawl and auto dependence. Uh, We want more choice in where we live and how we live.
2: I grew up uh, outside of Boston in Newton, It's sure. still on the Green Line. So I could hop on the T, I could get to the waterfront, I could get to Fenway Park, I could, get to, I could change on the red line to Harvard Square uh, and see everything there was to Absolutely. see in Cambridge. What, what is the, the difference between the have and have-nots of cities that have established public transportation and those that uh, never got around to it?
4: I think, I think transit... Uh, public transit, um, options, whether it's bus or light rail, um, biking, I mean, pedestrian. Um, This is uh, essential to 21st century competitiveness. This is aligned with how companies operate and what people demand. So this is not a nice thing to have. Uh, It's a necessity essentially. And once once you have it, what you then see is development tends to congregate in very smart and strategic ways around the transit stops. That's what we see in the Washington, D.C. metro, uh, around Arlington, around Silver Spring, around Bethesda. And that makes the point that this is not just about central cities. These are also about our older suburbs that were built in the 30s outside of Cleveland or out in the 50s outside of Washington and Chicago. I mean, these streetcar suburbs is what we used to call them. They're also very much part of this new innovation uh, and this new economic power that the United States has to build on.
2: Talk about the United States power versus others, I and mean, you've <clears throat> obviously traveled to the world's greatest and newest cities, yes. you've seen the best transportation from the airport into the city core, and then you do LaGuardia can or Newark. <laughs> I mean, it, it, is, is Bloomberg's New York always going to have <clears throat> one hand behind its back because it can't get people quickly from, and cleanly from the airport into the city core?
4: Well, it's embarrassing, frankly to travel to some of these uh, great cities abroad and then come back to the United States. Um, Look, New York City has the Port Authority, which needs to be remade, Penn Station, which has never been built in the first place, um, and JFK Airport. It's the trifecta of horrible entrees to a city, to to America's great city, great metropolis. Um, But there still is a a magnet in New York. People want to be there, and people, frankly, are willing to tolerate... Uh, these, you know, horrible gateways. But, uh, you know, there are already, for, for all three of those, um, you know, uh, ports of entry, some, some exciting ideas on the table to remake them and revive them.
2: Tell us, what, do you, what, do you, what are you seeing
4: or hearing? Well, there was a story in the New York Times, literally, about, Penn Station. about, about the Port Authority. Right. And Penn Station, um, there has been a desire to move Penn Station across the street to the old post office and reroute some of the tracks. I mean, nothing would be better than to have New York City be a vibrant gateway. And once that happens, what will happen is that whole area around the station will begin to develop as a more innovative hub, as the west side of New York City has has done in the last 15 or 20 years. Um, New York City is diversifying. And again, it's a key story in the book about... How do you take a city that was dependent on financial services, was at the epicenter of the Great Recession, and then have it become a real tech hub? That's what's happening in New York today.
2: You gave us a number in your talk about 20% representing the... Uh, science, technology, educa- uh, uh, engineering, and math economy. Yes. The so-called STEM. The STEM. Economy. Yeah,
4: the STEM. You know, we used to always think about the STEM economy um, as being a relatively small portion of the economy occupied by a lot of brainiacs from Stanford and MIT and Georgia Tech. Actually, it's a much more diverse and and large economy that really allows people coming out of high school and our community colleges with the right skills to participate with good wages and good benefits. This kind of insight, I think, is what can power the United States post-recession. We can get back to fundamentals, what drives what. And I see cities all around the country really embracing this new model. At some point in time, if you have enough cities and metros embracing this model, then the states and the federal government will follow.
2: Uh, You made an argument that um, perhaps 2008, the economic crash was a... uh, I don't know how you might term it, a wake-up call, or it stopped this rapid exurbanization of America, this home building on steroids. So as as many people who suffered through 2008, you might argue from a development standpoint that it it has a, a silver lining for the United States.
4: Well, it was a wake-up call, and it was a wake-up call on several levels because we, were re- we really understood that we had an economy that was cons- characterized by excessive consumption and debt, um, and sprawl and low-density development at the periphery of metropolitan areas uh, really um, you know, was, was a clear illustration of that. As we sort of move past the recession, if the United States is smart and strategic, we will go back to basics, we will understand that successful economies here and abroad are fueled by innovation ideas and manufacturing powered by advanced energy that's partly the shale gas revolution but that's also renewables driven by exports and global engagement we're not alone in the world we need to make goods and sell services that the rest of the world wants if you actually build that kind of economy uh, we could have jobs that provide dignity, but also good wages and good benefits, nothing would be more important after this recession for us to understand that cities and metros I think are at the vanguard of that realization
2: and there was an interesting sidebar in the conversation, uh, Bruce Katz, about um, the uh, what 's happening in in the new oil discoveries of the the great plains and one of my favorite shows of the last five or six years was hBO 's Deadwood uh, about the story of what the pioneers uh, built as they began to mine for gold in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Now in North Dakota, you have one of the most enormous uh, oil discoveries in the Continental 48 uh, uh, on record. What has to happen infrastructurally to go along with uh, now uh, uh, mobile homes upon mobile homes, temporary housing upon temporary housing as people come out there and try and seek their fortunes?
4: Well, I think um, for those portions of the country that are fortunate enough to have access to this energy, uh, and that energy, by, by the way, is fueling a manufacturing renaissance in many parts of this country, so it's critical to this growth model we've discussed, um, I think they need to be in it for the long haul, right, um, because uh, you, what you want to do is, is, is not just be a place for, for resource extraction, but you also want to be is a place for innovation, Right, around that extraction and that means investing in universities and investing in quality of place um, you know Denver was, was really a commodity town for a long time um, it's now really diversified into really one of the great global centers of technology and innovation um, and, and I think that's the kind of growth path that all places really need to want to be on but you've got to invest in the future you, you, you can't just be short term you've got to look long term and you've got to really engage on the fundamentals. I think that's the lesson of the past. We're in the middle of, I think, what could be one of the great pivotal decades in American history after this Great Recession, like the Great Depression really was the catalyst for transformative structural changes. Um, The only difference now is the Great Depression uh, really uh, made the federal government more powerful in our lives. I think the Great Recession will ultimately return power in to cities and metropolitan areas, and, actually, and clearly leadership is what is at that level. So who's going to seize this leadership? Who's going beside Bruce Katz and your
2: co-author and the book uh, the, yeah. <laughs> the, the Metropolitan Revolution? Who's going to see this, and, and is it just one person seeing it? Because you say uh, the cavalry is not coming in terms of the federal government.
4: Right. Well, I, I actually think what makes cities and metropolitan areas so powerful Is they are networks of leaders. Um, They're not governments like the federal government or state governments uh, where you have this clash almost built into the system between the executive branch, the legislature, and the judiciary. What you have at the local level are people who just want to get stuff done. They want to solve problems. They want to move their place forward. So when I look across the country, what I see are thousands of leaders, frankly, Um, all doing the hard work to grow jobs and make their economies more prosperous. We're rich in leadership. It's only when we focus on the 537 people who are elected in Washington do we get depressed. I I am highly optimistic because I look across 100 metros and beyond here and abroad, and I see thousands, tens of thousands of leaders. Uh, And I call this the pragmatic caucus. They put place over party and collaboration over conflict.
2: As we talked earlier, uh, you were the chief of staff to Hud Secretary Henry Cisneros. You advised President Obama during the transition, Sean Donovan, his HUD Secretary. What what what's the best thing the federal government can do?
4: Well the federal government, first and foremost, has to do things that cities can't do. So cities are not gonna secure our food supply or, you know, strike their own trade deals with China, or you know, um, have their own Medicare and Medicaid programs. I mean, there's there's things that the federal government does that they have to continue to do, but on many other things, frankly, metros should lead and the federal government should follow. I, I view the federal government and the state government as in the service of city and metropolitan prosperity, since cities and metros are the engines of the economy and the centers of trade and investment. And it is a flipping of the pyramid. It is a changing of our view of the hierarchy of power in the United States. So everything we learned as third graders about how power flows down from the federal government, um, frankly, power should flow up from the cities and metropolitan areas where we live. A true urban renaissance. A true urban renaissance. And, you know, the cover of our book tries to remake the American flag and the image of cities and metropolitan areas. And then we've actually animated it on a free iPad app, if anyone wants to download it. Tell us it.
2: about the image on the cover of the book.
4: Um, it basically um, takes those 13 bars, which represent our colonies, and instead have skyscrapers and sewer grates and the, the sort of iconic image of cities. And um, I, I think, in a way, you know, the United States has already been, always been a union of states and the federal government. That's our, those are our constitutional partners. But there's a third partner. There's a third sovereign, so to speak. Those are the cities and metropolitan areas that power our economy. And I think in this century, which is really an urban age, a metropolitan century, the United States will be that much more prosperous and environmentally sustainable and socially inclusive if we recognize the power of these places.
2: Bruce Katz, Brookings Institution. The book is The Metropolitan Revolution. Great talk. I'm so glad to have met you and been able to talk about this a little bit. Thank you. Take care. Thanks. When we come back, a quick trip down memory lane with Ned Lamont, one-time candidate for the U.S. Senate from the great state of Connecticut.
1: History in the making. This is POTUS, Sirius XM 124.
2: Welcome back. I'm Josh King, and you're listening to Polyoptics on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124. When I was living in Connecticut in the middle of the last decade, an upstart candidate named Ned Lamont seemed destined to win a seat in the U.S. Senate with a campaign built around a message against the war in Iraq. Lamont lined up a lot of support in the state, including that of the renowned senior Senator Chris Dodd, now the chairman and CEO of the Motion Picture Association of America. Let's start by hearing Senator Dodd in one of the ads that got a huge amount of local play in Connecticut in 2006.
0: I always want to tell people in Connecticut, I think Ned Lamont's a good man. This was a tough decision to run, but I admire you getting involved in this. People want change. You hear it everywhere you go. In Connecticut, all across this country, people want different leadership. In Washington, they want a new direction for our country, both at home and abroad. If we need a new direction. I think you can help us get there.
1: Look, Senator, I look forward to working with you as our senior senator. We're going to fight hard for Connecticut every step of the way. So let's do it together. Do what it. I'm Ned Lamont, and I approve this message. So do I.
2: And now let's catch up with the other man in that ad, Ned Lamont, the founder and chairman of Lamont Digital Systems, very much still engaged in issues related to technology and education. One more time, back to Aspen we go. So I'm here at the Aspen Ideas Festival with Ned Lamont. Uh, I just caught up with Ned after an amazing uh, conversation between Walter Isaacson and Bruce Katz talking about uh, the future of American cities and can American cities be saved. Ned, what would you think of the conversation?
1: Uh, Bruce Katz from Brookings is really the leader here, and he makes the point. He says the world is not divided into countries. Uh, the states is not it's not divided in the states. It's divided in the major metropolitan centers. And a metropolitan center, be it a New York or L.A. or San Francisco or Shanghai or Beijing, those are the drivers of the, their um, national economies. Uh, did you learn anything new listening to him? I learned that you better... Uh, think as a metropolitan area. So don't let the suburbs fight with the cities and the exurbs with the suburbs. Think in terms of what you are as that metro center and how you work together. Remember we had the head of Boeing who uh, just spoke and he said, look, I could have gone to Dallas. I could have gone to other places. I went to Chicago because the suburbs and the city worked together. It wasn't us against them. And at the end of the day, we located Boeing's corporate headquarters in the suburbs. But all the folks live in the city of Chicago and they come out on metro. That's the type of metro uh, strategy that's going to create winners and losers.
2: What did you think as you listen to Bruce talk about your own hometown of Greenwich? Obviously, for decades, the heart of the hedge fund industry. Um, did you think about the, what might happen, the, their need to migrate perhaps back to New York to get the vitality and the connection with other industries, other groups that Bruce is talking about?
1: Yeah, you go to uh, Stanford, Connecticut, where you got UBS and RBS and a lot of financial, and as guys who are, you know, uh, 40s, 50s who are taking the train uh, into the city, but as guys who are 20s and 30s driving, you know, taking the train out from the city to Stanford. And that's the dynamic that's going on, and that's what makes uh, those financial banks in the suburbs think twice about whether they really want to be in Stanford or perhaps they ought to be back in the city where all their young entrepreneurial folks are. But what I heard is a guy from Connecticut, listen, I'm not worried about Stanford and Greenwich and Fairfield County. We're part of the New York metro area and we'll grow along with New York City. But I worry about uh, Hartford and Torrington and New London, Connecticut. Those towns that... Um, you know, it used to be a factory town, and there was a rationale for them 50 years ago. And what's the rationale for them today? And that's what I was listening for Bruce Katz to say. Or maybe they just downsize, become second homes as our young people move into uh, you know New Haven and Stanford and New York City.
2: Have you you've thought about this many times? But what what is the thinking about whether mass transportation, state of the art uh, intercity rail? on the kind of connection that you
1: would imagine New York, Hartford, and Boston to have with that corridor, but it doesn't exist. Uh, It would save my state of Connecticut if we had high-speed rail from Hartford down to New Haven down to New York. A hundred years ago, you could take the train from New Haven to New York City in less time than you can today. And that just isolates a town like New Haven, Connecticut. This is what Bruce was talking about. And if it's isolated, it doesn't survive. I mean, you think
2: about the design of the Mass Pike to 84 down to 95. New technologies that would allow creation of rail in the median strips between those highways could do it if only the money was there. And yet Bruce's message to us was uh, uh, don't wait for any savior. Uh, It's going to have to be about partnership between... um, cities suburbs and states and the very
1: political makeup of connecticut is not designed that way is it now we're, we're a town of 169 towns and cities we don't even have county government and our state government is emaciated it spends all of its money on a retiree health care and a, a pension costs so if you're a mayor and you want to Uh, invest in your infrastructure, invest in your education resources, you better take the lead with your local business community. I moved
2: up to Hartford uh, in the fall of 2003 from Washington, D.C., full of optimism. Uh, It was my first corporate PR job. Uh, you, You went from a place where you could hardly afford a condo in DuPont Circle to buying almost a mansion in the west end of Hartford. And so as long as you were okay with the fact that cultural opportunities seemed to be pretty light City politics seemed to be slightly corrupt, uh, but you had maxes out in West Hartford, and you could get home to your parents in Boston, you could get down to New York, as long as you had a car. Hartford had everything going for it, but 10 years later, uh, there's still not a lot to show for it.
1: Look, my 25-year-old daughter would rather share a um, two-bedroom with six friends in Brooklyn that uh you know have a really nice spread up in Hartford mainly right now because of things to do where our friends are and what's going on so the future of Hartford is in ma- future Connecticut cuz we're both from there is to make it a place where young people want to be again i mean we got great educational institutions we educate them and then they move to Seattle, Boston or Boulder and um whether that is a transportation, it's not just education right now, whether it's a good living experience, whether it's the clubs, whether it's a small entrepreneurial businesses where you can make some money, it's that whole ecosystem that makes New York a winner and some of our town's losers right now.
2: I was thinking uh, as we listened to Bruce uh, and thinking back to your own family's past, I mean, your dad. Uh, Uh, worked on the Marshall Plan uh, after World War II, basically rebuilding all of Europe, and then went to work for President Nixon, didn't he?
1: you have done some good history. Um, My dad worked under um, President Nixon in housing and urban development creating new communities. So, uh, like Reston, Virginia was probably one of the most celebrated. And the theory was back then, perhaps these big cities their best days are behind them, but we're still going to create urban metropolises where you always have a metro stop within 500 yards of where you live. But at the end of the day, I think that's an idea that's uh, past its prime. I think the market is saying major metro centers are where young people want to be. And where young people want to be is where energy and jobs and the future is. So what do you think people
2: like Dan Malloy and uh, Chris Murphy and Dick Blumenthal are, are, have? Do they have any tools left in their, in their shed to, to work against this?
1: Well, look, Connecticut has a beautiful lifestyle. We've got great education institutions, and we're right between Boston and New York, two really growing metro centers. So we've got some real advantages. We haven't used them very well politically. um, But I would think, um, you know, as a governor or mayor, you probably look where you've got— Start where you've got your strengths. We have strengths in Stanford. We have big strengths in New Haven, Connecticut, right in the heart of the state of Connecticut. You know, with Yale and Quinnipiac, um, a big major life sciences function there. It's about our only city where young people really want to live. So let's build off of that.
2: So, uh, Ned Lamont, back in 2006, uh, my friends uh, Gary Collins... uh, Uh, asked me to come down to the Pond House in West Hartford in the heart of Elizabeth (laughs) Park and they said, Josh can you bring some of your sort of Clinton-esque polyoptics backdrops to help our friend Ned Lamont, big event. And so two days before I sort of got in front of my CAD program, I said, you know, for Connecticut's future, Ned Lamont with a bunch of state seals, a perfect presidential backdrop. And uh, and you came in, you said, wow, I've never seen such a good backdrop. But, uh, <laughs> and 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 that, that event good. itself was pretty good. But what happened, I mean, you obviously have a ton of ideas, uh, and yet... Uh, by the end of that campaign, it was sort of back to the same old, same old with Joe Lieberman. Why couldn't you penetrate through?
1: Uh, we had an awful lot of energy in and around uh, whether the invasion of Iraq was in America's best interest, not to mention the interests of the people of Iraq. Uh, we got um, great energy coming out of that. We won that primary and uh, the Republicans really didn't put up a candidate. Um, of any stature and that made it a lot easier for Karl Rove was here today and Joe Lieberman the Republicans to rally around Senator Lieberman he kept about 30 percent of the Democratic vote remember he'd been our Democratic nominee just a few years earlier and uh, you know that carried the day but look coming out of that race um, we elected the president United States who had opposed the war in Iraq from the very beginning who said I don't hate all wars but I hate dumb wars uh, he's a guy, uh, Barack Obama. Here we are, five years later. Probably the last guy in Washington who said, "Are you sure we want to get militarily involved in Syria?" And ironically, it was Bill Clinton who said, "I think Barack Obama is overlearning the lessons of the past." So I think you know, campaigns like what we did in two thousand and six, uh, win or lose, they do change the dialogue a little bit. I'm, Proud that I did it, and proud of friends like you that were supportive.
2: Well, we, my wife and I got very excited primary night. I think the uh, the final tab- tabulation was you were beating uh, Senator Lieberman fifty two percent to forty eight percent, maybe uh, uh, plus or minus. And you know, I come from a school of creating um, moments where the person is in isolation. This is Ned Lamont. This is going to be the next senator uh, from Connecticut. And I was—I know that uh, Gary was was with you that night, and I was emailing because I was walked, watching back in Hart, Hartford. And I said, "Here comes Ned Lamont up to the stage. Oh my God! There's a lot of people coming on stage. It's turning into sort of a circus. Look, there's Jesse Jackson. There's Al Sharpton on stage. And we looked at it and said." This should be Ned Lamont's moment because the whole world is looking at the the statement that you are going to be making about the war in Iraq and what this may mean in this off-year election. Next day, you look at the front pages of the Hartford Courant and other newspapers and you see sort of a a big gaggle on stage. Do you say, that might not have been the way I wanted to project myself that night?
1: Uh, It was a rookie mistake i'd never really done anything in politics before we had a we said we're going to be up stage with our um our family because this is uh this is how we got this thing started and we shook our head and all of a sudden um it was a lot more than family up there and uh john stewart on the daily show teased the hell out of me a week later because he had a picture of me standing up on stage and instead of jackson and um Sharpton, it was Ochman, Ninja, Castro. You know, he was just killing me, and uh, and that was a um, a tough photograph for us. I mean, the Lieberman campaign put it on everybody's windshields. The folks down in the suburbs of Fairfield County shook their head and said, "It's not the net I thought I knew." And um, and look, I've got no problem with Al Sharpton. He's a great leader on education reform, helping you guys turn out a lot of vote that day symbol of what we were trying to do, it was not helpful. And the other team were real political pros who had been in the game for 30 years, and they exploited it beautifully.
2: Uh, you ran for governor in 2009. Uh, Dan Malloy now is uh, the governor of the state. Um, how have you been spending your time since last we really saw uh, Ned Lamont in, in close focus back in 06 and 09? Well,
1: look, you're a serious news guy, Josh, and I'm working on a personalized news service for I deliver uh, cable services to uh, yes. about a million college students. So you are going to be able to find these are the news topics I like, Lady Gaga, the war in Iraq, Joe Lieberman, and um, and Crystal Meth. And these are the uh, video sources I like, which is BBC, Al Jazeera, CBS, and HuffPo Video, and we'll create a newscast just for Josh King. And we'll front load it to you, or we'll uh, deliver it to you in a 15 minute segment. And the hope is to somehow find a way to get young people to tune back into long form news, because we've tuned out over the last generation.
2: Well, that's the whole notion of this show, which is, you know, we've been talking for 12 minutes, we can talk another 12, <laughs> 45, I don't care, because on satellite radio, you ha- basically have as much time as you want. A lot of other sessions here in Aspen are talking about uh, how narrow the amount of information that we're getting uh is and we don't have the chance to watch uh or absorb or are that interested in a documentary about our subject so uh, you talk about your kids earlier in our conversation are they getting as much
1: information as you could when you were their age um my kids are news junkies i mean one of the things about having them involved in the political campaign is they stay into it but look they get it um off of uh, Facebook and Twitter. Maybe they read the New York Times, but they certainly have not seen a print copy of the New York Times. And I feel like a dinosaur reading it, you know, in our kitchen in the morning. Paper? What's paper? Um, but I think it's how you're going to take that old-fashioned content from the New York Times or from CBS or from Al Jazeera and finding a way to clip it and target it to people It makes it usable for them. And that's what the Internet and that's what Sirius allows us to do. What's your product going to be called? Do you know yet? Uh, uh, We're working with a group that's called WatchUp, so uh, look at watchup.com and see what you think. Excellent. Ned Lamont, thanks a lot for spending a few minutes with us on Polyoptics. Thanks. Great to be with you guys.
2: That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on SiriusXM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter, at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS.